This is Other Voices. We are listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to angler John Rowan of Gilderland. After a lifetime of fishing, as a kid in Indiana, as a teen on Long Island jetties, and now as a retiree in nearby streams and rivers, he still finds surprises. One time he hooked a 17-inch trout in a stream no wider than a driveway. Another time he thought a stream bottom was moving. It turned out to be a snapping turtle as big as a manhole cover. He revels, too, in reading and sharing fish stories. Today is April 1st, the traditional start of trout fishing in New York State. And I am talking to an angler extraordinaire, John Rowan of Gilderland. Welcome, John. Thank you, Melissa, and thank you for inviting me. Well, I thought it would be good to kind of do a primer about fishing. We, John and I have a mutual friend, the late Bryce Butler, who wrote for the Enterprise for years and was an angler, and he used to take every single fourth grader in Voorheesville out to go fishing for bluegills. And he did this because he felt like kids these days, most of them don't go fishing. So I just thought we'd begin, John, with talking a little about some of the basics, the most basic things. What are the different kinds of fishing that people could do? Melissa, one of the things about living in the capital region um, I used to write an article for the enterprise called the Capital Angler with both words capitalized. But in our part of the world, we have capital angling in the sense of, you know, lowercase capital angling. Um, I have friends in Southern California who live in the Los Angeles area and pretty much any time they want to fish for trout, they have to drive four hours to the Eastern Sierras. And in our part of the world, we can drive to some of the best trout streams in the world on a day trip. We can drive to the Catskills in two and a half hours. We can go to the Adirondacks. There are trout streams in Albany County, trout streams in Rensselaer County that are just lovely. Um, there are reservoirs. Um, the Mohawk River is a great fishery. The Hudson River has been cleaned up over the last 50 years. There are trout, there are um, panfish, uh, bluegill and sunfish like Bryce used to fish for perch. There are bass, there are pike, pickerel, um, there are walleye. And now this is a really crazy thing, Melissa. The Hudson River in front of Albany is tidal. And in May, there is a run of shad and striped bass. Now for those fish you have special regulations. You may not even be able to uh, fish for shad anymore, and you might need a boat for striped bass, but you don't have to drive to Cape Cod or the Hamptons to fish for striped bass for this little window of time. So we have just a lot of different things and opportunities, and there's, you know, it's reasonable in terms of 
of starting of accessing them. So that's that's that. Now you asked about the basic kinds of fishing, and there are roughly three types of fishing rods for the non-ice fishing series. The the one is called a spin fishing rod and with that rod they go from maybe four feet up to 10 feet you have a very light line made of monofilament which is a synthetic nylon and the way that the rod works is that you have a lure or a bait and the weight of that carries the line off of the reel when you cast um and then there is something called a bait casting or a push button reel, which works the same way. Um, there is a reel called a bait casting reel, which is very tricky to use because you have to put your finger on, on the line when it hits the water, otherwise you'll get a bird's nest. Um, so you've got the spinning, the um, the push button reel, the bait casting, and then you have a fly rod. And the thing about a fly rod is that if you ever look at it in a store, the the line looks like the thickness of angel hair pasta. And you'll say to yourself, how can you catch a fish which with something that thick? And what happens is, unlike these other rods where the weight of the lure does the work, the weight of the line does the work with the fly rod, and there is a thin monofilament leader between this spaghetti-like fly line and your fly. So those are the four different types that you have. Um, and you can spend all kinds of money on this stuff. Um, but one of the things that I just wanted to share with the listeners is that if you live in the Gildolin area and some of the other Albany County uh, communities, uh, Gildolin Library and some of the other libraries will actually let you check out a um, push button fishing rod. So if you didn't want to spend all the money to set yourself up with just a simple way, you could go to the library, check out a rod, give it a try and see if you liked it. Um, and then if you wanted to keep fishing with spin fishing or a push button reel, you could fly fishing, you might have to put some money in to get a rig, but so that's some of the stuff, um, you can fish with, uh, bait. Um, you can buy these little red worms or dig them up in your garden. Um, a lot of stores around here will sell night crawlers, which are sometimes too big, uh, you can fish with live or salted minnows. The issue with live bait fish is that some of them are invasive, so the state might not allow you to fish in some waters with them. Um, there are a million lures. I mean, if you go into um, any of the stores in Gilderlin, um, there's like walls with different kind of lures, and everybody has a special one they believe in. Um, I'm going to interrupt you here. Yes. Tell us about some of these lures <laughs> that okay. people believe in a lure. It sounds almost like a religious experience. Yes. Well, the thing is, I think that's, I said that about the belief, Melissa, because um, people choose to fish in certain ways. They choose to fish with spinning tackle or fly tackle or bait casting or the push button reel or the different lures because if they do it, something works and they catch fish and it's like, 
oh, well, that worked. I'm going to do it again. So that's why I say belief. Um, there is a lure called a spinner. And what it is, is it's about an inch and a half long and it has a treble hook. And maybe there are some feathers by the treble hook. And then there is a silver or gold or multicolored blade. And you cast this into the water. You let it sink. And as you retrieve, the motion of bringing the line back causes this spinner to go around. And I use those a lot if I pan fish on a lake, but there are men and women who fish for trout in streams with those and they do very well. So to the fish that looks like what? It reflects the light as it spins around and it it seems... Yeah, it's something flashy and attractive. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what it looks like to them. Um, There are other lures that are called spoons. And supposedly the reason they're called spoons is, is that... Somebody in the North Woods accidentally dropped a spoon out of their rowboat or canoe and a big um, northern pike came up and ate it. And so they said, oh, maybe we could turn that. Maybe we could make a lure that looks like that. So um, so there are spoons. Um, There is something um, with our hats off to Roadrunner Wiley Coyote called the Acme Castmaster, spelled with a K. And it's um, a lozenge, lozenge, God, a lozenge-shaped um, piece of shiny metal in either silver or gold with a treble hook and feathers. And it works in salt water. It works in fresh water. Um, if any people who are listening go to the Cape or go to, um, you know, the beach in the South, Castmaster is a great lure. Um, Another thing that there is, is there are what they call plugs. And the idea is that with spinning or bait casting, you cast a floating lure out and you let it sit until the rings from it hitting the water disappear. And then you twitch it. And the idea is that some fish um, are very sensitive to the vibration of it twitching in the water or the shape and they strike at it and it's used a lot by bass anglers. Um, And then the surface plugs, there's about 80 million, well, no, I exaggerate. There's many different variations on these um, and you can use those. Now with bait, I really like to use the small red worms because I do most of my fishing on streams for trout and there is a, a standard of hook sizes that you can find in a lot of different books. And there's something called a number 10 hook, which is maybe about three quarters of an inch. And you can put a a red worm on that and fish for trout with a little um, split shot to provide weight. And that's very effective, but there are other people who do well with um, salted minnows or do well with night crawlers. I just don't know enough about them. Um, so do kids still dig up worms in their backyard and use those? <laughs> Is that? Oh, yeah, you could. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things you and I first met, you know, at the paper back in the 80s. And since then, one of the things that's happened is many more people are doing composting now. And if you have a compost pile in your backyard, you know, you can get the fork or the, you know, the shovel in and shuffle it around and you might have red worms in that or, um, you know, so yeah, you can get, you can dig for the worms and, um, 
Well, so I interrupted your flow of thought. You were going through, you had the um, different kinds of the bait, the lures, and then I bet you were getting to the flies, right? I was getting, yes, yes. But um, one more thing to say about the worms. Okay. Can't leave them in the car. You know, if you put them in the refrigerator, make sure there's a tight lid on because you want to stay friends with your family. So anyway, (laughs) um, you sound like you're speaking from experience. Um, oh, no. What gave you that idea? Of course I'm speaking from experience. Um, now, there is a book by a guy from the Hudson Valley named Ray Bergman called Trout. And in the middle of it, there's 10 pages of colored plates. And each page has like 50 different flies on it. There are books that are... Um, the size of a small telephone book with fly patterns in them. So we can't really go into those in depth, but there's uh, basically um, four types of flies. There's something called a dry fly. And what happens is that is designed to float on the surface or to sink slightly below the surface because the insects on a trout stream uh, sometimes are sitting on the surface and sometimes the trout are Uh, condition to say, oh, my lunch is going to come from these bugs on the surface today. So there's a dry fly uh, type. There is something called a wet fly, which dates from the 19th century and um, was done in the United Kingdom and in the Catskills quite a lot. Um, And that looks like we're not exactly sure what, maybe a subaquatic insect because these insects have life cycles. And then somebody said, well, there is a specific phase of the aquatic insect life cycle called a nymph. So we're going to design things that look like nymphs. And then there is a type of pattern called a streamer. And a streamer might look like a minnow or a bait fish. And so there's those different types of of flies. And then there's hundreds, maybe thousands of patterns within each category. And um, if you get a fly vest and you're not careful, you may end up walking around like um, Marty Feldman and Young Frankenstein as Igor from, you know, uh, back pain because oh. you have so many fly boxes. And, oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I would just like to find out in this it's a, it seems like a separate world. How did you enter that world? How did you, John Rowan, become an angler? Did you start as a kid? What, what was your pathway into this? Well, my father very nicely took me fishing when I was five or six years old. I was in a, I was in a department store in Bloomington, Indiana, and all this fishing tackle looked neat. And they bought me some and he took me, even though he had no interest in this. Um, and I fished for a little while, you know, in elementary school. And then we moved to Staten Island and we would go to Long Island in the summer. And um, on the bays in Long Island, people were always coming up with, they were fishing for things, standing out on the jetties or the rocks. And my parents helped me get some saltwater fishing tackle. And I fished when I was an early teenager. And then I don't know why I gave it up. And when I moved to Albany in 1978, in 1979 or 1980, I started getting interested in trout fishing on the streams around here. And um, the Inesquithal was 
had a lot of access at that time. I caught a brown trout there and um, then I would fish around and I, I got really interested in trout fishing. I guess I like stream fishing because I'm under the illusion that it is more aerobic than sitting in a boat um, because you have to walk the stream. But lately I've realized that I will stand for half an hour in one place, trying a different fly, trying a different drift. So maybe that's self-delusion. Um, well, so tell me when you're fishing, is do you feel like, are the fish your enemy? Are the fish like prey or are the fish like you understand their minds and you're trying to get on their level in order to do the right kind of fly or the right kind of, you know, like what's your relationship to the fish when you're fishing? Um, my relationship to the fish is, it's like, um, I'm trying, what happens in these streams, Melissa, or, or in a, a lake or in salt water is, is that, the fish are in a certain place. Um, there are conditions that would motivate them more to be more or less interested in taking a lure or taking bait. And um, what I try to do is figure out where might those fish be and what would be attractive to them. Um, and what do I have the confidence in, you know, I got, went back to that thing about the belief. And if I'm on a trout stream, um, I'll look around and I'll say, um, where might there be a fish? And I'll try those places. And sometimes I'll trade places where there aren't, and maybe something will happen because, um, even though fish have very small brains, they are supremely evolved to fit their environment and they are very sensitive to motion to noise sometimes um and you know you want to be very you want to blend into the environment um and sometimes i will keep them to eat other times i'll let them go because i don't know if i'm going to catch more um my friend lotfi and i would fish on warner's lake and we would fish for panfish up there and if we started catching a few we would that were big enough we would keep them um and then we would fillet them afterwards and bryce used to do the same thing he would go to one of the reservoirs around here and he'd fish at night and if he got them big enough he'd take them home in his coleman cooler and fillet them so well, he had guess, these fourth graders eating their fish yeah, too. And this that's idea right, that, that's right. yeah, this idea that you can go back to kind of primal human, you know, gathering your food and yourself and eating yeah. it as opposed to going to the store and buying it. It's kind of a. Yeah. But do you have to worry these days about what might be polluting the fish? Do you are there places that you can't eat the fish that you catch, like the PCBs in the Hudson? I know you mentioned it's been cleaned a lot, but do you feel safe eating those? Well, that's thank you for asking that question, Melissa, because that that allows me to say two things. The first thing is, except for children, pretty much anybody who wants to fish in New York State needs to get a license. And it's not a license the way that firearms are licensed where you either have to or are strongly suggested to take safety training. You go in, you pay the money, and you get a license. And when you get the license, 
you get a book of fishing regulations that are issued by the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. And in the fishing book in the back, there is a health advisory from the State Department of Health. And the general advice is to that you shouldn't eat a lot of fish per month out of New York waters. And then there are places, as you said, the Hudson River, there's been a PCB problem. So there are specific warnings about the Hudson River. Um, there are some streams over in Rensselaer County where there were contaminants and those are listed and there are specific warnings. So um, the Great Lakes, there is a fishery in the Great Lakes for um, salmon and steelhead, which is a, a form of rainbow trout. And there are warnings on the health for that. Um, so the whole thing is laid out and you can, you know, look at what the risk is. Um, and in some cases, if you were fishing in a place on the Hudson, for example, above the Troy Lock and Dam, you're allowed to fish catch and release. And if you were up there and you were keeping the fish and somebody stopped you and you had fish in your possession, you know, you could get ticketed. But you can look at these regulations and this advisories and you can say to yourself, do I feel like, you know, eating them? You know, you can make your calculus of your risk and your benefit. Um, so far, people seem to think that you can fish catch and release um, even in a stream that's got some pollution issues and it might be okay for the fish, but then there's some debate about that. So if you wanted to go fishing in the Hudson, you know, maybe you could fish and let them go, um, for example. So, so on to a happier topic, you're describing yourself, understanding the fish and the environment. Is that also part of why you fish? Like to be part of the larger natural environment? There's so many studies these days as we're all feeling so stressed that just being outdoors is kind of a, a healing thing in itself. Is that part of why you fish or it? Yes, yes, and that's a good point. And, that's, and that kind of goes back to, you know, this idea about giving children the opportunity to learn because you are, it's, it's you, it's the outside, it's your tackle, and it's the water conditions and the fish. And it's like a person needs, you know, there's not an app for that. I mean, there's apps to help get you there. But, yeah, so that's a thing. Um, and I like being outdoors, just like you said. Um, I also like the idea that you go fishing and there's an infinite possibility for surprise. Um, there are a lot of trout streams in Rensselaer County, and some of them are no wider than a driveway at your house or in a neighborhood around here. And even though they're no wider than a driveway, there are 17-inch long trout in them, which is crazy. <laughs> that is so crazy. You, yeah, you go out and, and it's, you go out in a day and the question is, will anything happen? And if anything happens, what will it be? Um, there was a time back in the late 80s when there was a big tropical storm that came through the capital region. And I went out after the storm had passed and the water levels were coming down. 
And I caught this beautiful rainbow trout. It wasn't 17 inches in a place I'd never seen it. Um, on the same stream, I was fishing one afternoon. And all of a sudden, the stream bottom started to move. And I looked closer. And what had happened was there was a snapping turtle um, about 15 feet upstream from where I was that was about the size of a manhole cover. And, you know, it had no interest in me, but it's like, what are you doing there? And wow. um, so it's like, you see all these things, you see rainbows, um, you know, you, you get to see if you go out um, and it's, there's a cloud burst or there are people who fish on April 1st and it snows. And it's like, what happens when it snows? Does it make it more or less likely that you fish? So you, you learn all these things and you have all these surprises um there's an author named wd weatherall over in vermont or in new hampshire and he talks about encounters in fishing it's not just you know whether you hook and land something or take it home to eat so there are all these encounters with the fish and with nature which are very appealing well you've mentioned books and i see you have behind you on your walls shelves just lined with books i know you're a reader what do you have favorite fishing books that you could talk about things you could share on that i have three that i'll just mention if um if anybody in the audience is interested in trout fishing there's a beautiful book called trout reflections by David Carroll. And uh, Dave is an author and artist who lives in New Hampshire. And a lot of his book, it's in a seasonal format, like a diary, a journal. And a lot of the conditions he described about his trout streams, they he either fished in New York or the New England streams are very similar to what we have. So if you like trout fishing, if you like wildlife art, Dave's book is really good. So there wait, an, the art is his own drawings of various yes. fish and settings that he's fished in? Yes. Oh, wow. And um, it's really great. There is an author in Colorado named John Gearock who writes essays um, in magazines, Melissa, and then every so often he puts them together in a book. He's got, I think, 18 books by now. His second book is called The View from Rat Lake, and... It's, it's about fly fishing, and maybe not everybody who is listening is interested in fly fishing, but John is very good at talking about um, how you feel when you're out fishing or traveling to fish, um, kind of like what you and I talked about with the experiences before. Well, and, you, you must be friends with him because in your last column that you wrote for us March 17th, you quoted him, um, right? John yeah, Garrock, well, you said uh, you were talking about New York changing its, um, you know, season for trout fishing. And you quoted him as saying the state of Colorado thought if those maniacs want to get out in February, let them. So, yes, yeah. yes. He's more of a pen pal than, you know, um, a friend friend who you get together with lunch. But, yeah, we keep in contact. And, and yeah, he's he's very good. This book, The View from Rat Lake, has a wonderful essay called The Fish Car. And it's wonderful because it talks about what it's like, you know, what kind of car or truck you want to have. And he has all these recollections about going fishing with his uncle Leonard, who's kind of a character. And um, 
if somebody, you know, it, it's a really nice combination of fishing and family and memoir. So I like the John Gearock. I like the view from Rat Lake. The last book I wanted to mention is there's an artist and an author named Russell Chatham, spelled like R. Chatham in Columbia County. And Russell has died, sadly. He was 89 or 90. He has a book called The Angler's Coast about fishing in the West Coast. These were things he wrote for Sports Illustrated in the 60s. And they're they're beautiful. There's um, there's humor. Um in San Francisco Bay, they have a lot of striped bass, and um, he and his friend were fishing, and they found a really good spot, and they were fishing at night because that's the time you go, and a policeman pulls up, and the policeman comes over and says to him, what are you doing? Well, this was a time, Melissa, when smoking marijuana was still a significant legal issue, and Russ and his friend were so keen to not let this cop know about how good the striped bass fishing was that they said, well, <laughs> we're just having a little toke here, officer. Now, they didn't get busted, but, you know, you talk about people hiding their fishing spots. But I think why is that? Bryce used to do that, too. He would never tell where he got these fish. I wonder, is there a competitive element to fishing? Because I know the DEC will send to our paper when there's, you know, some angler holding a very large fish and they'll say, you know, like some record breaking weight on whatever kind of fish it is. Yeah. So is that, is there like this competitive element to the sport? You know, it might be either competitive or atavistic. It's like, this is mine, even <laughs> though it's a public stream. I don't know, but yeah, you're right about that. And I mean, but the thing is, is that, that, that friends take their friends places, but yeah, they, they don't really, I guess there's a fear that if I was to write something in the enterprise about go to this bridge on the Kinderhook, everybody would go there and it might get just overfished by the, the volume. That might be part of it. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly all the reasons why. But, well, that's um, a great story. That's a really good story. Um, well, our time is just ticking away. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I have two. Okay. One thing I wanted to say is I mentioned how the Gilderland Library and some of the other libraries will let you check out Fishing Tackle. Um, if you like to read about fishing, the nonfiction is in the 799.1s and all 35 libraries in Albany and Rensselaer County have an online catalog. So if you really want a book, you can find it. In many of those libraries, a lot of the best fishing writers lived around here. And interlibrary loan, you can get it even if it's in Buffalo. And the last thing I wanted to say, Melissa, is that um, there are people who want to, you know, they'll spend hundreds of dollars on a fishing rod. And they're a great, it's great tackle and um, it's a good thing. But I always think you want to have a budget that gives you everything you need to enjoy the experience, even if it's not the best fishing rod in the world. If you're stream fishing, you want to have enough money to buy the waders so you don't get wet and you can buy the rod. So, you know, you want to have try to have everything, not just, you know, great this, nothing this. And I also like the idea that I think it's more important to put in the time maybe than to spend the money, you know, save the money to 
pay gas and so you can go more places and get more practice. So, you know, um, you can do a lot uh, if you put in the time. If you don't have the time, go anyway, because, you know, surprising things happen. And it's a great it's a great pastime. <laughs>